So let's go over our procession and what was revealed, kind of reminding ourselves that truth was revealed in the order of its importance. So the very first circle was the Father and the Son coming down, right? So what was revealed was the identity of God, the single greatest truth that we possess and the foundation of the restoration. Don't think that the restoration are some of the things people are arguing over. The restoration is the identity of the Father and that you connect with Him personally. Then came Moroni and revealed the Book of Mormon. The foundation of our doctrine, our truth. And there's a connection here. We know God because of the Book of Mormon. And then came... So the Father, the Son, Moroni, John the Baptist, Peter, James, and John. Now we have priesthood. We have keys. We have authority. So we talked about priesthood. And once we have those two, we were authorized to organize the Church of Christ on earth. Now, the next event that we talked about was the Kirtland Temple. Because in the Kirtland Temple, we receive three very important keys. Key number one is the key of Moses, which allows us to gather. So we talked about that, the role of the church in gathering Israel into a safe place. That this earth began with a gathering into a safe place to save them from destruction. This earth will end with a gathering into a safe place to save them from destruction. The city of Enoch of old will come back and join the city of Enoch of new. So we're going to gather and build that city. That was one key. We can do it because we received the dispensation of Abraham. And then we talked last week that it's not just saving them temporally, right? If we didn't save them temporally, it's not the end of the world. But if we don't seal them, if we don't use the keys that Elijah brought, to get their name into that book, then this gathering was a waste. So we talked about the obligation that we have to save families for eternity. Salvation is an individual affair. You don't need any other human being to be saved with a resurrected body into a kingdom of glory. That is your gift from Jesus, and all you have to do is choose which kingdom you want by how much of him you obey. But if you want exaltation, you must create an eternal family unit. Whether you do it in this life or in the next, before we enter into the eternities, we must create eternal family units. Now that is now gonna lead to what we're gonna do tonight. I wanted to do Kirtland Temple first because that was different. But tonight we'll do Nauvoo Temple. And the restoration of your endowment of power. You need an endowment. So let's talk tonight as to why we build temples. What is the purpose? 
I want you to catch the vision of the work of the temple. Now, do you remember when we were talking about building Zion? When we're going to build the physical Zion, do you remember when he pushed the pause button? Section 105, when they weren't going to build the city, the Lord pushed the pause button. Do you remember what he said? We're going to push the pause button until you are endowed from on high. We will never build the city of Zion without the work of the temples. So tonight, what I want to do is help you catch the spirit of what the temple is all about. What is the invitation the temple is making and why is it that we build temples? So tonight, let's talk about the restoration of temple ordinances. Now, allow me to take you on a little journey. Now, somewhere along the way, somewhere between the organization of the church and the Nauvoo temple being built, Joseph receives section 76 and the degrees of glory. Now, I want to very clearly distinguish between the terrestrial kingdom and the terrestrial world. The terrestrial world is part of your journey through mortality. The terrestrial kingdom is a destination. So there is a celestial kingdom, a terrestrial kingdom, and a telestial kingdom. But our journey through them, our journey to, our journey to the celestial kingdom is going to go through the telestial world, through the terrestrial world, and into a celestial world so that I can enter a celestial kingdom. Do you understand that distinction? So our journey through mortality starts in the telestial world. You came into a fallen telestial world and your nature starts as telestial. We all start at the telestial, natural, animal level. So God comes into our life and he says, look, I need you to make two changes. We're going to make two journeys. And this is where the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints takes you to the next step. Because journey number one is an invitation to go from telestial to terrestrial. Get out of the telestial world and come up into a terrestrial world. Now, those of you who've been to the temple are starting to recognize some key words, right? We leave the telestial world and we enter the terrestrial world. Now, that is symbolic of what you've done. Now, I would suggest... the. The way my brain operates, this is just my term, this is not an official church term, but where do we perform the work of going from celestial to terrestrial? Those ordinances are what I call chapel ordinances. This is what missionaries do. Missionaries go out into the world, and the invitation is come out of the telestial world and into the terrestrial. Membership in the church kind of assumes that you've overcome telestial, and you're in the process of becoming terrestrial. 
If you are unwilling to make those changes, you can't join the church. And so we perform ordinances in the chapel. Now look at the ordinances. Tell me what is the first ordinance we hold in the chapel. Even before sacrament. That's designed to be a second ordinance. The first ordinance someone coming into the church would experience is baptism. So tell me what's the, what's the, what is the covenant of baptism? If you really look at baptism, I know we present baptism as a remission of sins, but the token of baptism isn't washing your hands. It's not a washing. Now, every single time there is an ordinance, you will find a token and a covenant. Every ordinance has an outward action that we perform, a token, that is symbolic of the promise we're making. So if you want to understand the covenant, you look at the token. Now, the beauty about baptism to sacrament is the same covenant, right? All we're changing is the token and we renew the ordinance. So let's take a look at the token of baptism. Tell me what you see in the token of baptism. It is not a washing. Tell me what you see in the token of baptism. A death. The reason we go into the water and are buried and come up out of the water is something is dying. Something has to die. You coming into this church is a covenant to kill something. So what is it that's dying? What is it that has to die in order for you to be a member of the church? The telestial part of you. You have to kill the telestial part of you. And we describe that part of us with different titles. And one of them is, it's the natural man. So anciently, we would do the same thing. Let me pull up the ancient temple. We can learn a whole lot about our modern day temples by taking a look at the days where they couldn't build necessarily a chapel and a temple. So they built one building. Now here's the one building. Now which of this would you say is the temple? It's these two rooms. This outer courtyard represented our journey through the telestial and into the terrestrial. So the first veil separated telestial and terrestrial. And coming into the temple itself was symbolic of coming out of the telestial and into the terrestrial. And then there was another veil. And this inner room called the holy, this is the holy place, and this is the holy of holies, represents coming out of the terrestrial and into the celestial. The temple itself showed your journey through the telestial into the terrestrial and into the celestial. So what was the first item coming out of the telestial and into the terrestrial? You would run into which item? The altar of sacrifice. Very similar to our baptism. 
the altar of sacrifice. So tonight, let me teach you how to offer a sacrifice. How many of you know, how many of you have ever been through the process of the Old Testament sacrifice? Most, I know you have, but most of us have never walked through the process of offering a sacrifice. So let me walk you through the process. Let me pretend I'm doing it with my family. Can I do it with my family in front of you and you participate? I have a sweet, tender-hearted 18-year-old daughter. And I'm going to take my 18-year-old daughter to the temple. Well, to the chapel in our vernacular. And she and I are going to offer a sacrifice. So come with me. If you want, we could do Leviticus chapter 1 or we can go Bible dictionary. I want you to know that it's in Leviticus, but uh, let's go to the Bible dictionary. Turn to the word sacrifices in the Bible dictionary. Let me walk you through how to offer a sacrifice. And we're going to see this ordinance in our chapels, in our baptismal. All right, so find the word sacrifice. Go to the fourth paragraph and you'll see a numbered list. Everyone see the numbered list? Sacrifices, Bible dictionary, fourth paragraph, numbered list. All right, Hallie, my 18-year-old daughter and I are going to offer a sacrifice. Tell me what is step number one. Let's list these. Step number one is the presentation of the offering. Why? Because the animal, I don't know where to draw this, I'm running out of space. The animal is going to do two things. The animal is going to represent Christ. So which animal should I take if I want it to represent Christ? It needs to be a perfect animal, as close as I can, as good as I possibly can. So the presentation is to pass the test. Does this animal represent Christ sufficiently? No broken bones? Is it clean? Is it pure? Does it represent Christ? Okay, Hallie, you've brought us a lamb. It's beautiful. Okay, this passes the test. Check number one. Now, this is where it gets a little weird for Latter-day Saints. Tell me what Hallie does next. She lays her hands on the lamb's head. My 18-year-old daughter lays her hands on the lamb's head. Why? What else does this lamb represent? her the animal in her the animal in our family every one of us have an animal inside me call it the natural man call it whatever you want but i have an animal inside me and can i take that animal all the way into the celestial room i can't I cannot take the animal inside me into the celestial room. So I have to let it go. So Hallie lays her hands. To dedicate the animal as her representative. Now tell me what's number three. 
who kills the lamb? Do you, like a tithing animal, hand it to the bishop and walk away? Do you hand the lamb to the priest and you walk away? Is that how Old Testament sacrifice worked? You came, here's my lamb, here's my offering, see ya, and I go home. Who's going to kill this lamb? My 18-year-old daughter. The priest is going to hand her the knife. Now tell me what you think my 18-year-old daughter does when the priest hands her the knife. What would you do? Can you picture what she's saying? Dad, why is he handing me a knife, Dad? Dad, what's the knife for? You have to kill the lamb. I do? Yes, Hallie. You have to kill the lamb. Now, what's she going to say? Why does the lamb have to die? The lamb didn't do anything wrong. And what am I? My daughter and I are going to have a beautiful little discussion. You're right. The lamb didn't do anything wrong. Why does the lamb have to die? And then we're going to have this discussion. Hallie, if you do not kill that animal, that animal will destroy you. If we do not kill the animal in our family, the animal will destroy our family. You get to choose. Do you kill the animal inside you? Or does the animal inside you kill you? Here's the knife, Hallie. Now, do you think my daughter would remember that? I'm grateful that we don't offer animals, but do you think my daughter would remember this experience? The next time the natural man in her wanted to say something that wasn't right, would she remember this experience? If you do not kill the telestial, the telestial will kill you. So she kills the lamb. Is she weeping? And she kills the lamb. All right. Number four. What's number four? She sprinkles the blood. Again, do you see both of these? Why would she sprinkle the blood here? You remember the sprinkling of his blood? Why would she sprinkle the blood here? Moses, when he put them under covenant, threw the blood on them. The sprinkling of the blood is a receiving of the covenant. But I see this as a little bit more significant. Sprinkling of blood, pouring the blood on the altar. If Jesus were an object, wouldn't he be that altar? Doesn't that altar represent him? And so the fourth thing my daughter does is she pours the blood on the altar. Now here's how I see that. What color was Jesus wearing when he walks into Gethsemane? Knowing him, what would you guess? What color do you think Jesus wore? White. What color did he come out wearing? Red. Knowing what happened in Gethsemane, he came out wearing red, right? 
Now, I'm going to go meet him in there. I'm going to meet him in Gethsemane. And what am I walking in wearing? Red. What am I walking out of Gethsemane wearing? Because what did I do? I sprinkled it onto him. My, the killing of my natural man is only complete if I sprinkle it on him. And so number four is the sprinkling. Of the blood. Now number five. I think one of the most important steps. What happens number five? I burn it. Because how do you make the animal go away? That's very important. How do you make the animal in you go away? Fire. Light. And what do we sing is that fire? The baptism of fire is we sing the spirit of God like a So how do you make the animal in you go away? That's it. It's so simple. You make the animal go away by bringing the spirit into you. In the language of the Book of Mormon, let's read it. Turn with me to Mosiah chapter 3, verse 19. The natural man is an enemy to God, right? How do you make the natural man go away? Mosiah 3, 19, who will read? The natural man is an enemy to God. Caitlin, verse 19. Ready? Unless he yields the enticings of the Holy Spirit. That last part, one more time. The natural man will be an enemy unless he yields to the enticings of the Holy Spirit. There's the answer. And so we would take the animal and burn it. Now, what specifically, what parts of the animal specifically would we burn? What would you guess? Even if you don't know Old Testament history, what would you guess they burned? They would burn the brain. Do you see why? What do I need to fill in order to have the Holy Ghost? What do I need to do to have the Holy Ghost? I fill my thoughts. I, in essence, burn my brain. What else would they burn? What else would they not? The heart. Why would they burn the heart? What's the message? What's the symbolism? Fill your heart with the Holy Ghost. They would burn the feet, the hooves. Why? Because they carry me. What do I fill? What do I fill my feet with? The Spirit. Do you see the symbolism? Now, those of you who have ever been to the temple, the very first thing you did in the temple was you washed your eyes and your head and your ears and your lips and your hands and your feet and your heart and your shoulders. Why? Do you see what you're doing? I promise to wash the world out of my, what I look at, what I think about, what I talk about, what I listen to, what I desire, what I click on, where I go. It's the same idea. They would take the animal 
and burn it. Burn the parts that symbolize what I need to fill my life with the fire and the light. You see that beautiful little symbolism? This is the burning. And then number six, they don't burn the whole thing, right? They don't burn the whole animal. They take the meat home and they feast. We celebrate the victory of Christ. We celebrate the overcoming of the natural man. We feast. And when Jesus comes, what will we do? The, the first thing we do when Jesus comes is we eat, we feast. And we remember that every single time we go to the sacrament, we go to the church and we we eat. Anciently in the temple, the king would provide a feast. And so we feast, we celebrate the overcoming of the natural man. Do you see the significance of that ordinance in coming out of the celestial and into the terrestrial? And so today, the ordinances of the chapel, baptism, is a killing of the natural man. So then, after baptism, what's another chapel ordinance? So what do you see in the symbolism of the sacrament? We take the same covenant and we just change the token because we can't feel the font every single Sunday for every member of this church. No way. So we're going to remake the covenant with a different token. So what's the token? Tell me what you see in the sacrament that is showing you how to overcome the natural man. So we take bread and what do we do? We break it. Now, when Jesus ended the sacrifice of animals, what did he replace it with? Let's go to 3 Nephi chapter 9, 19 and 20. 3 Nephi 9, 19 and 20. He says, no more animals. No more animals. Instead, who will read it? 9, 19 and 20. Jay, do you got it? 3 Nephi 9. This is post-atonement. He hasn't yet ascended to the Nephites, but he has been resurrected. And so he's declaring post-atonement. Jay? Ye shall offer up unto me no more the shedding of blood. Yea, your sacrifices and your burnt offerings shall be done away with. For I will accept none of your sacrifices and your burnt offerings. Okay, so they're now gone. What's the new? What's the replacement? Keep going. Ye shall offer for a sacrifice unto me a broken heart and a contrite spirit. And whosoever cometh unto me with a broken heart and a contrite spirit, him will I baptize with fire and with the Holy Ghost. Okay, stop there. In other words, the modern day offering, instead of an animal, is a broken heart. So what do we do to the bread? We break the bread. And the symbolism is the breaking of the natural man. So what is it that needs to break? Why does my heart need to break? Allow me an analogy. Allow me to give an analogy. Okay? Go ahead, Brianna. Oh, I was just going to say a broken heart is an open heart. It's an open. It's a, where do you want me to go, Lord? Because what have I broken? What is it that I break when I break my heart? Let me illustrate. I don't know if you've ever broken a horse. That's a horrible term, but have you ever broken a horse? Tell me what breaks when the horse breaks. You don't break its body. You don't break its bones. You don't break its spirit. You don't break its will. I don't want a willless horse. I don't want a spiritless horse. 
But something needs to break. Let me illustrate. When I was young, I helped out at a ranch in my neighborhood. One of my favorite things. Spent a lot of time there. This ranch, this rancher was a rescuer. And one time he brought in a wild horse. I don't know where it came from, but he brought in a wild horse with a broken leg. Now tell me what usually happens to horses with broken legs. Why do you put down? That's a cruel thing to do. Why do you put down a horse with a broken leg? The leg right. And the horse will do what? And then it will just get worse and worse and worse and the horse will be incredible pain. So this rancher was going to save this horse, but there's no way he saves the horse until when? Tell me what a wild horse is going to do. I was there when the horse came off the trailer. Tell me what a wild horse is going to do. Now, the first thing the rancher's got to do is put a horse, a, a rope around the horse's neck. Now, tell me what that horse does to that rope. And I saw in that a symbol of me and Heavenly Father. That rope represents my natural man pulling against everything Heavenly Father is asking me to do. And all of a sudden, I saw a symbol of the natural man in this wild horse. There's no way he can heal that leg until that horse does what? Trusts him. And doesn't run away from him, runs towards him. The only way Heavenly Father heals my broken parts is if what? I trust him and stop running away. And so we worked with that horse until finally the horse trusted him to the point where he could heal the leg. And that was the first time I finally understood what a broken heart was. He cannot heal me as long as I am trying to pull away from him. So here's an interesting, I don't know if this is a typo, I don't know if this is a slip, but here's an interesting phrase in the Book of Mormon. When the anti-Nephi-Lehi's laid down their weapons, does anyone know what it called them? It doesn't say weapons of war. That's what I would expect it to say. That's the very thing I expected. They're laying down the weapons of war. It doesn't say war. Anyone know what it says? That's what it says. Go to Alma chapter 23. Alma chapter 23. In order for the Lamanites to be converted, the anti-Nephi-Lehites, they have to lay down. Look at verse 7. They became a righteous people because why? They did lay down the weapons of their rebellion. That's, I think, why we break the bread. I need to lay down the weapon of my rebellion. Now, if I can be personal, if I can... There's a commandment. You're resisting. There is a commandment you are fighting God on. And you are pulling the other way. And when you finally break that rebellion, 
and lay down the weapon of your rebellion, he can heal you. Do you see what sacrament is? So baptism is a symbol of burning up and killing the natural man. Sacrament is a symbol of breaking the rebellion, breaking my heart. How about the the water? Tell me what you see in the water. What's the symbol of water, of the water? Okay, so we've got blood. I, I, I get this. I get that the sacrament cup points to him. How does it point to me? Notice that the sacrament always comes in what form? It's handed to me in what form? A cup. I want you to think of a moment where Jesus was handed a cup. And he didn't want to drink it. What, was, what would drinking that cup do to him? It would kill him. And yet, in spite of not wanting to, tell me what he did. Now, do you see the symbolism? Now I sit in a sacrament table and there's a commandment I don't want to obey. There's something I don't want to do in the gospel. And it's like the same thing. And he drank his cup and he's asking me to drink my cup. It's going to kill me. It's going to kill the animal in me. Do you see repeatedly the ordinances of the chapel? And so the chapel, going back to this symbolism, altar of sacrifice, the laver of washing. I am washing and killing the telestial. Now that is a work we all need to go through. Therefore, on the side of all of our chapels, what does it say on every single chapel? Visitors welcome, because why? That journey is for all of us. Come in, come into this building and we will talk about overcoming the telestial. I would suggest to you every conference talk, every institute class, everything we do in the chapel is an invitation to overcome the telestial and become more terrestrial. Now, if you think you're done when you've become a good person, you do not understand the fullness of the gospel. You are half done when you become a good person. When you have killed the natural man and you have stopped resisting God and you've laid down the weapons of your rebellion, you are half done in your journey. You have become terrestrial. Now, in the Doctrine and Covenants, section 76, what word is a synonym for terrestrial? Anyone know the word that the Lord uses as a synonym? Honorable. If I were to walk in here and say, this is the most honorable class I've ever taught, you'd be complimented. If I were to say this is the most terrestrial class I've ever taught, you'd be offended. And yet those are synonyms. Terrestrial is good and honorable. 
And if you will overcome the natural man, you will be terrestrial. And now Jesus comes along and says what? You're halfway. All this journey that you've made, you're halfway. And now the invitation is to go from terrestrial to celestial. And we need another building. We need a building that not everyone is invited to because not everyone wants to make this journey. And it's not a prejudicial thing. It's not we're better than you. It's not an exclusionary thing. It's an acknowledgement that other people are not on the journey we choose to be on. And anyone who is on this journey is welcome into that building. But if you're not ready for this journey, there's another building you need to start in. How about going there? But do you see why we need a second building? Do you see why they needed another step after they come out of the telestial? We need another building whose focus is on a completely different change. And the change is going from terrestrial to celestial. And as far as I can see, the only religion on earth that will know how to take you from terrestrial to celestial is the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And that's why we build temples. Everything we do in the temple is designed to help you go from terrestrial to celestial. These ordinances are in the chapel. These ordinances are in the temple. So what's the difference? The first thing we have to do, the first thing, this is really difficult for me to do. I need to convince you how terrestrial you are. And that's okay. We don't talk about terrestrial sins much in this church. Because in the chapel, what's the focus? Overcoming telestial. How many of you could make a really long list of telestial sins? Very quickly, could you make a list of telestial sins, right? How many of you could make a list the same size of terrestrial sins? How many of you have no idea what a terrestrial sin is? There's the challenge. Is the first thing we have to do is to recognize my terrestrialness. If you can understand your terrestrialness, you can then understand the work of the temple. Because remember how we talked about you'll never build the celestial city unless you're a celestial people. If you don't know what to change, you're never going to change. So we need to talk about terrestrial sins. So let me illustrate it a different way. Let me erase all this. I'm going to illustrate it this way. You have in your life... A telestial box filled with all sorts of telestial things. And you have your hand reaching into that box and you are holding on to, we are holding on to telestial things. Now the problem is when I make a fist, what's going to happen? I can't pull my hand out. Now where is that box going to end up? Telestial kingdom. 
and I've got my hand firmly inside. I got two choices. What are my choices? Either let go or follow it into the telestial kingdom. Easiest way to go to the telestial kingdom is just hold on to telestial things and you'll go right in. But if you do not desire to end up in the telestial kingdom, that assumes you must do what? You must let go of every telestial thing. You cannot hold on to a single one of them and move on to the next kingdom. So the, the first journey of life is letting me, is inviting me to let go of telestial. Hence the chapel ordinances. Hence this institute class tonight. Hence general conference. And everything we do in the church, let go of telestial. And once you've done that, guess what you discover? You have a terrestrial box. And you are holding tightly onto terrestrial things. Now, where will that box end up? Same choice. Between today and eternity, you either let go of every terrestrial thing or you follow that box into the terrestrial kingdom. And the Lord says, let me help you with that. And hence we have a temple. We also have a celestial box. Now my goal is to reach into that box and hold on as tightly as I can. I want to hold on to everything that's celestial and let go of everything that's terrestrial and telestial. So let's pause this discussion and let's see if we can clarify the different boxes. I want you to walk away saying, okay, I have a better idea of what's in this box. What are the terrestrial sins you're holding on to? Now, last week and this week, we studied the Sermon on the Mount, and I will tell you there is no greater sermon on helping you understand the difference between telestial, terrestrial, and celestial than the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount at its very basis is, okay, this is what you've done to get here, and this is what you need to do now. Jesus will say, this is what you've done to get here, and this is what you need to do now. And so we can clearly say, okay, I can get the difference between telestial, terrestrial, and celestial. So turn with me to Matt. Actually, let's do the Book of Mormon version because let me, let me convince you that the Sermon on the Mount is for members of the church who are ready for the next journey. Because there's a couple verses that he includes in 3 Nephi that we don't have in the Matthew account. I'm sure they were there, but I'm sure they were taken out. So go to 3 Nephi chapter 12, which is the same as Matthew 5. 3 Nephi chapter 12 is the Nephite version of the Sermon on the Mount. Go to verse 1. Give me the very first, blessed are you. The first beatitude is, Blessed are ye if ye shall give heed unto these wor the words of these twelve whom I have chosen from among you, to minister unto you and you be your servants. Now go to verse 12. Blessed are they who shall believe in your words and come down into the depths of humility and be baptized. So to whom is he speaking when he gave the Sermon on the Mount? 
this group. Blessed are you if you've been baptized and have come out of celestial into terrestrial. Now my job is to push you here. So he's going to say, this is what you got. This is what got you here. And this is what you need to do. So we're going to say, what then is the terrestrial thing I'm holding on to? And then we'll see the purpose of the temple. So let's jump to, how about verse 21? What did I do to come into the terrestrial? Thou shalt not kill. So very clearly, tell me celestial fruit. Tell me something celestial. Murder, violence, hurting people, hitting people, causing people pain is celestial. You beat a child, that's celestial. You beat a spouse, that's celestial. Physical harm is celestial. To not do that is terrestrial. I don't hit people. I don't hit my children. I would never hit my spouse. Okay, I've, I've, I've come this far. Now he says you're halfway done, so tell me what he does now. I say unto you, verse what in 22? Don't be angry. Keep going. What? Give me the rest of that. I may not hit my children, but what might I do? Belittle them. Be angry. I might say some snarky remark about how dumb my child is. I didn't hit him, but I am holding on to terrestrial fruit. So give me a terrestrial fruit. Anger in my hands is celestial. Anger in my heart is terrestrial. Let go. Don't say demeaning things. Now we're quick to say the wrong things, aren't we? And what do we say? What's our justification? I'm not hurting them. It's true. You're not celestial. But you are not celestial either. Because your words, your heart, your thoughts are terrestrial. You see the difference? If anger is in your heart, you're terrestrial. If anger is in your hands, you're celestial. Now, I know it's not so simple, but you bear with me. Okay, let's do sexual transgressions. Verse 27, what got me to this point? Thou shalt not commit the act of adultery. To do those things is celestial. Now he says what? Next verse. But you're thinking it. You do it in your heart and in your head. 
So there's a terrestrial fruit. To look upon a woman and lust after her is terrestrial adultery. So get it out of your heart. Get it out of your eyes and get it out of your heart. Do you see the difference? Every time I think things I couldn't actually do, I'm committing a terrestrial act. And the Lord says, if you want to be celestial, you've got to let go of those. You've got to change what you think and what you feel and what you desire. Now, divorce is a little bit difficult because he is not saying that if you get a divorce, you're not going to the celestial kingdom. I don't, that is not at all our doctrine. But so let me paraphrase 31 and 32 as I see it. If I'm a celestial person, if I'm a celestial man married to this woman here and I want that woman over there, tell me what I do. I cheat. A terrestrial man will do the fair, honorable thing. If I want her and I'm married to her, what will a terrestrial man do? Divorce her and marry her so that it's kept within the covenant. That's honorable. Now tell me about the celestial man. I don't look. I don't want her. I don't let the thought of her enter into my head. I don't think of her. I stay faithful, not just in deed, but in thought. You see the difference? We, verse 38, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. Who steals teeth and pokes out eyes? Telestial people. Terrestrial people, tell me about them. I would never hurt you, but if you hurt me, I'm going to hurt you back. That's a very terrestrial act. Every time you react, you're being terrestrial. Terrestrial is the reaction. You hurt me, I hurt you. I return evil for evil. You do evil for me, I do evil to you. That's terrestrial. You say something mean about me, I say something mean about you. I'm terrestrial. So tell me what makes me celestial. I return good for evil. You do evil to me and I return good. You don't deserve it. It's not fair, but I do it anyway. That's celestial. So looking at love, look at verse 41 and 44, or 43 and 44. Tell me who celestial people love. Don't say, don't say neighbors and hate their enemies. That's terrestrial. Who do celestial people love? Themselves. Who do terrestrial people love? The people who love them. The easy people to love. Are there people that are easy to love because they love you? That's terrestrial love. Who do celestial people love? Those who don't deserve their love. They choose the moment that you don't deserve my love and they love you. 
Do you see the challenge? So the Lord says, okay, those of you who have made this change, let me invite you to make this change. Now, tell me what's changing here. What's the essence of this change from telestial to terrestrial? What's changing here? This is, this is what, I, what I do. This is a change of action. This is an outward change. You can see this change, can't you? And that's why you go on a mission and you see someone change. You see this change. Everyone can tell when I've made this change. So tell me, what's this change? It's completely inward. And the only person that knows, the only person that knows, I should say the only people that know are me and him. And so we go into a temple and the whole purpose of the temple is to invite that change. Now let me take 10 minutes and give you examples. I don't want to bore those who haven't been to the temple. I want to give you something to look forward to. And those of you who have been, I want you to begin to recognize in the temple ordinances a desire to go from terrestrial to celestial. Now, you kind of need to develop an eye for symbols. And we, maybe we'll take some more. I don't know. I'm going to watch you how you handle the next five minutes. Because if we need to come back to this, we'll come back to this. But you have to develop an eye for symbols. So if I were to symbolize the overcoming of the natural man, the death and the burial of the natural man, what did Jesus use to symbolize that? Do you remember when he talked to Nicodemus? The symbol of killing the natural man and being born again is a baby, like that rebirth, right? I am reborn. So if I were to pull this up, let me pull this symbol up. Uh, where is it? There it is. This is the symbol of a baptized member of the church, I think. There I am. Now, if you want to play on that symbol a little bit, what did this baby just come through? This baby, I assume it will be a boy. This little boy was once encased in water. Whose water? Mom's water. Whose blood is this? Mom's blood. To come into the church, the baby will once again do what? Be completely submersed in whose water? Jesus' water. Whose blood? Jesus's blood. So this is now Jesus's blood and baptism that I just came through. And I am a little baby. Now tell me the very first thing you're going to do to that baby. What would you do to that baby, Caitlin? Meaning I wash him. 
So the very first thing you do in the temple is you're washed. Now don't worry, you're not literally washed. You're ceremonially lost. But here's the thing. I don't need to be washed outwardly, right? What, what's the temple pointing me towards? So what am I going to wash in the temple? I'm going to wash what I look at, what I think about, what I listen to, what I talk about, what I click on, where I go, what I hold up, what I give birth to. Do you see the symbolism? The first thing I'm going to do in the temple is wash my thoughts, wash my heart. I'm going to wash what I talk about. So those of you who have been to the temple, are you washing your thoughts? Are you washing what you look at? Are you washing your heart? The invitation of the temple is to wash the terrestrial off of you or out of you. Do you see the symbolism? Now, if this were Simba, what would I do to the baby next? I anoint it. And then what would you do? What do you do to a naked baby? You clothe it. Do you see the work of the temple? He takes me. He washes me. He anoints me. He clothes me. Let's talk about that clothing just a little bit. Let's talk about clothing that baby. Um, turn with me to Moses chapter 3. The last verse of Moses chapter 3. Almost inappropriate for the scriptures. Hey, there was a man there and a woman there. And by the way, they were naked. And they weren't ashamed. Okay, so you got to see the symbolism here. See the symbolism. Tell me what their nakedness represents. They're, that's why they're not ashamed. Their innocence is that they're not ashamed. But what does their nakedness mean? They are exposed. They are exposed and not embarrassed, which means they have nothing to be ashamed of. Now go to chapter 4, verse 12. They partake of the fruit. And now they've done something that they're ashamed of. So tell me what they do in verse 13. They cover themselves. They cover themselves. They hide their sins. So tell me, what are some modern day fig leaves that we use to hide our sins from each other and from God? Darkness is a fig leaf. I let darkness hide my sins. Closed doors are fig leaves. Lies are fig leaves. Rationalization are fig leaves. Blaming are fig leaves. Everything you do to hide your sins from other people, you cover yourself with a fig leaf. 
What's the problem with fig leaves? They don't cover very well, do they? So verse 14, when the fig leaves don't work, what do they do in verse 14? They hide among the trees, bigger. So when your lie doesn't cover your sin, what do you do? What do you have to do? When the lie starts to come off and you're going to be naked and ashamed, what do you do? A bigger lie. You cover yourself with bigger lies. Now, at what point do you say, this is not how I want to live? I don't want to cover myself with fig leaves. So notice what Adam and Eve, look at verse 18. What's the last phrase in verse 18? They come out from behind the trees. They face God and they say, we ate. What do we call that? Repentance. And as soon as they repent, verse 27, what does Heavenly Father do? He clothes them with coats of skins. Now, hold on. You got to see the symbolism. Where did Heavenly Father get coats of skins? He had to have killed an animal. If you were to guess, now it doesn't say, but if you were to guess, which animal do you think he killed to cover Adam and Eve? A lamb. Do you see the symbolism? What is it that I need to cover myself with? I need to take the fig leaves off and cover myself with the atoning, the atoning sacrifice. When you go to the temple, you will literally be covered in a symbol of the atonement. Your garment is a symbol of the coats of skins that they wore, and it represents, are you covered with the atonement? Or do you use fig leaves? Let go of the fig leaves and cover yourself with the atonement. Do you see the symbolism? Everything in the temple is pointing you to overcome terrestrial and be celestial. Let's do another one. Do you recognize these symbols? If I were to say the word compass, which one would you think? In the temple, when God uses the word compass, this is not the image. Those of you who are wearing coats of skins, this is not the image you wear, is it? What's the image you wear? This is the image you wear. So, if I were to just dig that image through time, let me show you. Oh, I didn't put them here. Uh, let me see if I can find where I put them. Here's one. This is the Masonic symbol. Tell me what you see. A compass and a square. A compass and a square. This is... A gardening, ancient, long, uh, the order of gardeners from ancient. What do you see? A compass and a square. This is an ancient order of carpenters. 
Tell me what you see. Compass and square. This is a church in the colonial days. Tell me what you see. Compass and triangle. Tell me what all of these things are used for. What do you use a compass and a square for? Okay, direction is good, but I think they're more commonly used in building. So what am I? I am a project in process. So let's talk compass and square. Let me just talk compass. Why, going back to this image... What do we use these for? What shape is interestingly absent from the coats of skins that you wear? The circle. Wouldn't you expect to find a circle? How many circles are there in the temple? How many circles do we make in the temple? We make circles all the time. So where's the symbol of the circle? It's here. Tell me what you do with a compass. What do you do with a compass? How do you make a circle with a compass? You pick a center point and then draw around it. Every circle in the temple is pointing to something. So bear with me. Can you think, those of you who've been, can you think of the time we make a circle? Think of the time we make a circle. Now tell me why we make circles. Why would we form this class into a circle? Why would I change the seating to be in a circle? What's the advantage of a circle? I can see everyone. Right now, Caitlin cannot see the people in the back. But if we were to form a circle, I could see everyone. Now tell me what that circle is pointing at. What is it pointing at? Tell me. An altar. The altar would symbolize his atonement. I am supposed to see you through his atonement. We don't do that very often, do we? The temple is an invitation to see other people through the atonement. Do you? Is that what you see when you look at other people? Do you put the atonement on them and see them through the effects that the atonement would have on them? Or do you just see the raw them? Do you see the invitation? Now tell me what else that circle points to. When we make a circle, what do we put on that altar? Tell me what we put on that altar. We put the names of the people that... Broken people. 
My job is to do what? Get broken people to him. Why do we form this circle? To get broken people to him. In this church, what do we often do to the broken people? What do Mormons have a tendency to do to broken people who don't act like they do? Where do we tend to put them? And the whole covenant of the temple is telling us what? Form a circle and put them on Jesus. Now, is that what my life is doing? Is my life forming a circle around broken people so that they can be protected while they come to Jesus? Or do I judge them and laugh at them and act like a terrestrial person? Do you see the invitation? Every ordinance in the temple is inviting you to go from terrestrial to celestial. What do we wear in the temple? Why? Why do we all wear the same thing? What's he saying? Do you see what we have in common? Or do you focus on what we have that's different? Every ordinance, everything in the temple is designed to help you overcome our natural terrestrial tendencies and be celestial. And we could go on and on and on. But I bear you my testimony. Do you see why we need temples? The chapel will get us how far? Terrestrial. We have to catch the vision of the temples. We have to understand the mission. Let me walk sacredly to another circle. Actually, let's read the scriptures. If I'm safe reading the scriptures, right? I'm safe if we turn to the scriptures. Turn with me to Isaiah chapter 22. Turn with me to Isaiah 22. I'll pull it up on the screen so we can do it all together. Old Testament, Isaiah 22. Now, here's the situation. Here's this. Hezekiah is the king. Hezekiah is king in Israel, in Judah. And he has a servant that is being replaced. He has not been a faithful man. Verse 15, get thee unto this treasurer, even unto Shebna, which is over the, the house, and say, get out of here, dude. You're no longer going to be the king's treasurer. And you're going to replace him with a man by the name of Eliakim. I will call my servant Eliakim to be the servant of the king. Now, what's the servant of the king going to do? The servant of the king has what we call the key of David. Don't look too low, I'll put it right here. Eliakim is going to have the key of the house of David, which means he decides who gets in to see the king. Eliakim decides who sees the king. Now, do you see the symbolism? Who's the king? 
the father, Eliakim, is Christ, and Christ gets to decide who goes to see the king. Jesus has the key of David. He'll say that in the book of Revelation. I have the key of David. Now, what Isaiah is saying to Hezekiah is you can trust Eliakim. He's the kind of person you can trust. And then what does Isaiah say Eliakim is? What does he say? Eliakim is a nail in a sure place. A nail in a sure place. Now, quoting Elder Holland, if you were to crucify me and wanted to cause the most amount of pain, where would you pound the nails? In my palm. That would hurt the most, right? But what's the problem with me hanging from nails in my palm? They're not secure. And so where would you nail me if you wanted to make sure I stayed on that cross? You would nail me in my wrist. So a nail through the wrist is a symbol of someone or something that will stay, will hold. Jesus is what? Jesus is a nail in a sure place. If I hang, if I hang my life on Jesus, what happens? Now, not only that, but what is Jesus asking me to be? He is a nail and a sure place for me. What is he asking me to be for him? Will you be someone I can count on? Will you be a nail in a sure place? So I hold Jesus in such a way that I remember what he is to me and what I promise to be for him. There's only one other person I hold that way. Jesus and one person. Now, when I was married in the temple, I sat at an ice, I kneeled at an altar. Carved into the carpet around the altar was a circle. God was putting a circle around my marriage. Now, think compass. What was that circle pointing at. I have a shield and a protection around my marriage if I am what for her? A nail in a sure place. You want to know what celestial marriage is about? It's being that for each other. I say to my wife, you can hang all your trust, all your hopes. You can hang your heart on me because I will be a nail in a sure place for you.
He showed me what marriage is in that circle. And if I am a nail in a sure place for my wife, and she is a nail in a sure place for me, what does God do to the two of us? Do you see the beauty? Every ordinance is pushing me into this realm. See it. See how everything in the temple is pointing me to be more celestial. Every covenant, every token, everything I I do in the temple. Do you see why we need temples? We will discuss in the chapels how to be more terrestrial. But only in that house do we have the real essential conversations about being celestial. Join those conversations. He often doesn't tell you. He shows you. So don't miss the symbols. Wash what you think about. And no one will know but you. Be celestial. Live a celestial life. And that's why we have temples. And I say that in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.